Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. My name is Craig Fitzpatrick and welcome to 2022. The year can officially start, no encore is back and we're making good time. Um, Listen, you know, we've a weak head start on the Chinese New Year, so we're laughing. Thank you everyone who's been eagerly anticipating this. Maybe not exactly this, but you know, the show. We had our usual winter break, recharged, we're waiting for new releases. Um, As you, dear listener, and maybe dear patron subscriber, we're showless every Friday, but, um, you know, I know you were saying, listen, we love you, but where's the content? It's all transactional with you guys, but you kept the faith. We're back, back, back in 2022. If you want to continue to support the show, patreon.com forward slash no encore, get the plug in early doors. I uh, really hope you're keeping well and you had a good Christmas and a good break. And there's a few signs that, you know, a better year is coming. Sadly, I must say off the top, uh, it didn't get off to the best of starts for the show family. So if you're obviously wondering why Dave isn't here and doing the kind of intro as he normally would do, um, and you might know, yeah, that he actually lost his father last week. John Hanrady passed away. Um, Dave is doing as well as can be expected. Not that you can kind of expect anything in these circumstances. But um, yeah, he seems to be, you know, all good. Touch wood. And so I'm briefly at the funeral yesterday. He was surrounded by well-wishers. And actually on Saturday as well um, for an all-too-rare in-person meetup where which involved friend of the show Make a serenading us and trying to raise spirits with a loud rendition of the Spice Girls Viva Forever to us and to the entire Workman's smoking area, which was tremendous. So heartened was Dave by it that he considered doing the show this week. And um, 
we've, we finally saw sense a few days later and yeah, it was not the week for it, obviously. But next week is going to be the week for it. So he will be back then. We look forward to that. Um, sleep well, John Ranrudy. Thank you for giving us a great friend, great music journalist, podcaster, writer. Dave actually put together a lovely touching piece. You can check it out on his Twitter um, at Hanrady Dave. Please do. I am joined uh, by Sonic Architect Adam Shanahan. He's back on camera, <laughs> silent as ever, giving a thumbs up in a plush home studio kind of set up um, with a sunlight going. It's it's zen. It's, you know, the, the window on the Zoom call is always very zen, but it's like zen window 2.0 at the moment. Um, so, yeah, he's there. And also, speaking of great writers, we are joined by music critic. <laughs> you just heard her there, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Broadcaster extraordinaire. The um the Sultan of Scanduch. <laughs> Zara Hederman <laughs> back on the mic. Hello, sorry, Sultan of Scanduch. Uh just ended <laughs> me there. Uh, <clears throat> uh, thanks, Craig. And obviously yeah, thinking of Dave and hope he's doing okay and rest rest in peace, John Hanready. Um yeah. that was a, a great introduction, Craig. You're- it's all downhill from here. <laughs> yeah, it's no definitely. Well it's it been is. two years with the mic now. Um Saw you briefly yesterday as well in person. Uh, I actually feel far more relaxed now. You know, we have just the screen separating us. Um, same to you, Adam, as well. Just in-person stuff. I, I think I'm over it. How about you? Yeah, no, I'm, I can't wait to just get back. The end of year recordings were so nice. Just like being in the same room as everyone. Um, having the laugh and having a coffee and a sandwich in the middle between two episodes. I do have a question. Really good though. sandwich. Oh yeah, go yeah, on, sorry. I have a question for you. Um, are you a patron yet? God damn you. <laughs> Gosh. No, I am not a patron. Although, do you know what? Patreon, patron. In you are you are here about a patron and a contributor to the show. <laughs> and you're a you know, in, many, in many ways I'm um what would you say? I'm like a content patron. I, I'm like, I, I contribute in terms of creativity, in terms of zest, in terms of my my voice, my dulcet tones that, you know, keeps the people, keeps that cash piling in and p- piling up. <laughs> whatever makes you sleep at night, Craig, whatever makes you sleep at night. I've had a lot of support from people saying, you should not be a patron of your own show, Craig, because it doesn't make any sense <laughs> to get admin <laughs> tax on your own money. But anyway, listen, that's a discussion for another day and another Dave. And it will run and run. But um, yeah, is there any kind of, do we need any updates in, in terms of Zara Land? Are you plugging anything? You never plug anything when you come on the show. You claim you do it for the love of the show, which I'm starting to believe. Yeah, no, I feel bad plugging anything. Um, oh no, by all let means. Me see. Uh, re- I reviewed the new Silverbacks album for The Quietest that came out to the reviews out today. That album's out tomorrow, or as the listeners listening right now, it's out now. Do finish listening to the episode first and then go and listen to uh, archive material from Silverbacks. But even there, I, w- I promoted other people's work. I didn't really promote anything that I'm up to, but. Just yeah. always happy to be the Sultan of Scandooch, spread the good word of Irish music. Um, I have the shakes, Craig. I will tell you that now and I will warn the listener. Um, I'm so, yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this up because um, yeah, I didn't know if it was my place. You are dreadfully hungover, I believe. <laughs> Although you don't seem it, I will say. That's because I'm not really making eye contact with you that much, Craig. <laughs> 
nothing new there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> listen, um, if you can't if you can't have a hangover after a funeral, I suppose you know. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, to celebrate the life, right? You very much do. And I think that's probably our moment to segue into the news. Before we get into the news, I will say we will have um, our album review, which isn't an album review. It's a mixtape review. That's a great start to the year. FKA Twigs is back. It's basically an album. It's, you know, about 50 minutes long. It's called Capri Songs. I keep thinking Capri Sun in my head, which is, you know, the pouch drink with the straw thing and the fun and the blah 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 but we we won't talk about Capri Sun we'll talk about Capri Songs in a little bit we've got the return of everyone's favourite segment um, the return of the vaguely kind of tortured titles of the top five so this week we have okay I think we can go with days of the week songs does that work? so it's songs with a day of the week in the title yeah um, and we're not going to be taking this one too seriously. Uh, the last one we did was an ode to 1999 Summertime for Humanity. So we might, you know, continue with the frivolousness for um, the first week back. And yeah, there's there's lots to talk about in that. Um, there was lots of options. We'll get to it. But before all that, it's the news. Hey, you heard about the good news? And yeah, we're now just over a week out from the passing of Ronnie Spector, but it would have felt a bit weird, at least not mentioning it. Um, so Ronnie Spector, just kind of 1960s pop icon, um, who had a number of humongous hits, not least Be My Baby, has passed away. She was 78. Um, statement from her family read, Our beloved Earth Angel Ronnie peacefully left this world today after a brief battle with cancer. She was with family and in the arms of her husband Jonathan. Ronnie lived her life with a twinkle in her eye, spunky attitude, a wicked sense of humour and a smile on her face. Um, and yeah, and what a tremendous voice. Um, Zara, you know, I think you were kind of uh, I remember it might have been actually one of your tweets where I saw the news breaking and I was kind of knocked for six just because mm. ah, you're just losing another person. A tremendously influential voice. Um, archetype, I guess. Just seems like so many roads lead back to Ronnie Spector, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was really sad to hear yeah. the news of her death because it news didn't come out of her even being ill at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And obviously, yeah, like that voice is just so synonymous with the 60s girl group movement and then kind of throughout just how we saw people like Amy Winehouse in the mid-2000s just being mm. really influenced by her and trying to not like emulate the sound but I guess kind of carry that sound and that torch um, in a different kind of era um, she's a fascinating figure um, I remember when I was a teenager really getting into the Ronettes it was like the only kind of music I listened to for a good period while all my friends like were getting into baby shambles and dirty pretty things I was <laughs> listening to maudlin music about teenage love you know what, Sarah, I, I think I was doing both so it's a pity we weren't friends <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so it's really sad um, obviously Be My Baby is such a to use the horrendous word iconic song but it is uh, such a huge part in films like Mean Streets and obviously Dirty Dancing but um, I read her memoir um, How I Sur- Survived Mascara, Mini Skirts and Madness an amazing title yeah, like really two good. years ago at the start of the pandemic 
And to this day, it is the greatest music memoir I've ever read in my life. Really? Okay. Oh my God, Craig, you have to read it. Um, she's so funny. Her s- stories are incredible. Like when she was, when the Ronettes went on tour with um, the Beatles and like partied with them for a little bit, she had a little bit of a romance with John Lennon. Um, there's a hilarious dalliance with Bowie. Um, and then there's just like a terrifying birth story that she shares which just completely put me off child children full stop um (laughs) but no it's a really great book I highly highly recommend it uh, especially kind of on the back of her death so yeah rest in power to Ronnie Spector yeah for sure I need to check that out I need to do some digging as well just in terms of her um musical career beyond the 60s because it does like obviously a lot of people have been coming out and saying you know um need to shine a spotlight on the stuff she did thereafter which to be honest I don't know a huge uh, amount about but yeah I'm gonna do a little digging it's not great I will tell you that oh really not, okay yeah. so Alexis Petridis and mark that off your bingo cards your show bingo cards <laughs> wrote a piece in the Guardian was like don't be sleeping on this stuff um, I've heard I think the most I've heard is like she covered like a few Ramon songs which immediately further endeared me to her but they didn't sound amazing so I was like it seemed like a varied career is that the polite way of saying it like I, yeah you know, just absolutely like curios yeah, and stuff yeah, I think it was like 71, she did go into the studio with George Harrison and um, Phil Spector, obviously, was when she was still married to him. And um, George had written the song Try Some, Buy Some when she recorded it. And John Lennon and George were playing on the song. And it was released, but it didn't really do anything. George then re-recorded it, released it himself. But there was supposed to be an album, a Ronnie Spector album, put out through Apple from those sessions. And it just never saw the light of day, pretty much because of Phil Spector, which is... Um, <sighs> That, ju- that really makes me think less of Phil Spector, I have to say. And mm. um, <laughs> I had such a high opinion of the guy. Um, no, not Phil Spector, of course. <laughs> First gaff of the new year. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, rest in power, as you say. Um, I did see uh, way less important news of Brockhampton breaking up as well, which was like probably something we should mention, which was not least because they were due to play the Primavera that I was supposed to be going to for the last two or three years. So they didn't manage to survive as a group, um, all of those delays. Um, and I was also thinking about it and I believe their entire recorded career happened in the time since Frank Ocean last released an album. So yeah, wild ride for Brockhampton. They are no more. If you're going to Primavera like me, maybe this summer, they will not be there. <laughs> so are you hopeful that you are going to get Primavera this year? I think so. No, is that a little too optimistic? I, no, I, feel I don't think so. I think like, you're going you know... to have to. <laughs> Sounds vaguely patronising. It's good to have hope, Craig, you know. Just like last year and the year before that. You know who doesn't have hope or belief in themselves? Go on. Bono and you hit the music of YouTube. A segue. Tremendous. First segue of the year. Really good. Even if it was a lie about, <laughs> I think this, all these quotes are kind of a lie. So the headline reads, Bono dislikes U2's name and most of their songs. So he was on some... So bad. Yeah, I know. He was on some random podcast. It's like a Times podcast, awards chatter. 
And I don't know why he's pitching up on that one. He explained that he turns off the radio when U2's songs are played because he can't listen to his vocals. And he's claimed that he only learned how to sing recently. I, I've seen him say that before. And it was probably yeah. Q interviews in like 2004 where he's just like, I don't know. He's he's always got an angle. He's always got a hook. I don't know. He's a salesman. But anyway, <laughs> first of all, he said he, he still doesn't like U2's band name. Uh, the quote from Bono reads, I really don't. But I was late into some kind of dyslexia. Not sure about that. I didn't realise that the Beatles was a bad pun either. Fair enough. In her head, it was like the spy plane U-boat. It was futuristic, as it turned out to imply this kind of acquiescence. No, I don't like that name. I still don't really like the name. Paul McGuinness, our first manager, did say, look, it's a great name. It's going to look good in a T-shirt, letter, and a number. I think it's a pretty good name, right? I, I mean, it could have been... it's a good name. Yeah. I, I think it's it's short, it's snappy. Visually, I think it looks good. And I also think that like visually it does, I think, look like a rock band. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I think it's um, one of the best things about them. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it beats... I, I get his point on the kind of U2 thing, which, yeah. to be honest, when you hear U2, the band name, you just think U2, the band at this point, um, which is probably a testament to their success. But it could have been, in terms of like you know, innocent double entendres, it's better than UB40. I don't think that's a double entendre really, is it? It could be. It could be like you, sh- it could be a command to be middle-aged. Um, same as the B-52s. <laughs> B-52. I don't know. I think U2 is a good band name. But um, when he was going on to talk about his voice, he said that um, years back, Robert Palmer had told uh, bassist Adam Clayton, God, would you ever tell your singer to just take the keys uh, down a little bit? He'd do himself a favour and he'd do all of us a favour who have to listen to him. So um, Yeah, so Bono was saying, he, I was thinking out of my body. I wasn't thinking about singing. I didn't really think about changing keys. Did we ever change a key? Um, and, I think the thing yeah. that I found uh, quite funny as well about this story was um, in the interview, he said that um, like a lot of his vocal performances make him cringe. And he said that um, their 2004 single, Vertigo, is probably the one I'm most proud of. Most proud? Yeah. Which and I, I actually to... like Vertigo, but so many people just load that song. Yeah, like I liked it too. But then I was thinking about like all of the other amazing vocal performances from Bono over the years. And I think like stuff like Stay Far Away So Close is great. Uh, Who's Gonna Ride Your Old Horses? I think that's amazing. Brilliant. Yeah, um, Lemon, like I, I love. I love when he does yeah. that kind of falsetto leap. I think he's actually, all jokes aside, I think he's a great singer, <laughs> to be honest. Exactly. Especially because when you think about how you 2 started out and the, their sound then was a lot kind of choppier and punkier. So like he didn't really need to have like a good voice necessarily for the songs that they were delivering but I do always think that he did a fair job of like sounding decent um I'd never really had any problem with his voice before um but I did find this like also quite funny how like of all the things that he's given out about you two and how embarrassed he is about like his career the one thing that he didn't say that he was embarrassed about was that his nickname and he's known as Bono like I think that's like I think that's pretty mortifying. Do you know what's slightly more mortifying as a nickname? The Edge. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, like, what do you mean in your 60s and you're The Edge? (sighs) Particularly when you just... I'm sure Larry Mullen Jr. and Adam are so happy. Yeah, yeah, really. Because, you know, did they actually have nicknames 
to begin with and they dropped them or were they just not that ridiculous to begin with? I'm going to guess the latter. But that I'm was a close call. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can't really picture Larry going along with, I don't know, Bongo or something. Because they just seem so normal. Like, <laughs> Doesn't Bono, you know, apart from being called Bono, when he does that thing when they're writing songs where he just sings melodies without words, doesn't he call that Bonglees or something as well? He's got like his own name for his way of just singing nonsense and gibberish. I think he calls it Bonglees, <laughs> which I love. Um, There's like a, a video of this, something like Bono teaches you Bonglese. That would be an amazing watch. That would be an amazing masterclass, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. There's a quote from Bono in this as well, uh, where he goes, I do think YouTube pushes out the boat on embarrassment quite a lot. Maybe that's the place to be as an artist, you know, right at the edge of your level of embarrassment, which we have said on this show quite a bit when talking about YouTube, I think, where it's like, yes, they can be utterly cringe. They can get it horribly wrong, but actually they kind of take those chances and fall flat on their face sometimes but that's kind of where the ambitious kind of big widescreen amazing U2 moments and there's you know a good few of them come from so cut yourself some slack Bono um take it easy on yourself um pay some taxes and (laughs) (laughs) and yeah that's it okay let's move right along to Another big ego who's, you know, coming back down to earth, I, I guess you would say. Um, unless it's, you know, unless we're thinking of his many, yeah, many so apparent encounters with UFOs. It's Robbie Williams. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering which of the two uh, news stories you were going to go to, whether it was going to be Ro- Robbie or pro- possibly the next one that we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah, we've got a nice trio. Um, little, yeah, little teaser there. It is Robbie Williams. Um, he's revealed that at the height of his fame, there was a hitman hired to kill him. Now, I don't want to kind of make... <laughs> I know. This is like... Okay. So he's made some outlandish claims over the years. I mean, you know, just the aforementioned UFO stuff. Um, I don't think he's quite as credible as Tom DeLong on that, for instance. I've done the research. I've looked into it. And uh, I'm sorry, Robbie. But this one is... <laughs> he, was, he was doing an interview with The Mirror, first of all. I'm like, Robbie, why'd you have to do that at this point? Like, yeah. Um, and actually, the few times I've seen him interviewed in recent years, he comes across as quite self-aware now and he's been working on himself and he seems like a perfectly nice chap. Um, so if this is true, this would be extremely scary. Um, the quote goes, I've never, ever said this, but I had a contract put on me to kill me. I've never said that publicly before. It went away. I have friends. I love that line so much. I have friends. Is he talking about little aliens? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Does he think he's Tony um, Soprano as well? Like... I mean, I guess he knows some people, right? He probably... Uh, that stuff is the unseen stuff that happens when you become famous. And my thought was, like, is it? Because obviously, you know, having your life threatened when you're mega famous is a very, very real thing. And there's unhinged people and there's stalkers and it must be extremely scary. But generally, those unhinged stalkers don't have the ways and means to hire a hitman. <laughs> I've always assumed a hitman has a certain code of ethics. Do you know what I mean? Do they just, maybe I'm being naive here. Do they just take any job? Would they not go, listen, you need to get over your grievances with Robbie Williams. He's left, take that. It's no reason to kill the man. I'm not taking this hit. Um, 
Maybe not. Maybe they're just mercenaries for hire. Actually, that's exactly what they are. They're hitmen. Do you believe this story, Zara? Who do you think, this is a bigger question, who do you think wanted to kill Robbie Williams at the height of his fame? So what, 1999 maybe? Oh, this is a big accusation. And we should point out legally a joking one on this comedy podcast (laughs) about confirmed um, Tory, Gary Barlow, um, who at that time would have been, um, would have had, you know, a lot of, they've since made up. Uh, Gary Barlow's career has since come back, but at the height of Robbie Williams fame, yeah, I, I guess... Gary Barlow was in the doldrums. Was he in the doldrums enough that he would have put out a hit on? I don't think so. I think the man who wrote Back for Good can't wish any ill on anyone, can he? Smoke and mirrors. That's all like just part of the good boy persona, I think. I'd say if you like looked in, I'd say Gary Barlow at one point possibly would have been like, especially as Robbie Williams says here, when he had a solo career, he sold 80 million albums and he held the record for the most tickets sold in a day for a tour. So I'd say Gary was like at home pretty <laughs> jealous about that. Like even if Gary was at home getting the like bones of like patience together or something like that, I could imagine that he would get ticked off enough to like want to take Robbie Williams out. Especially because like, I th- always think that like, People loved Robbie the most in Take That because he had the edge. He was like, he was the Shane Lynch of Take That. (laughs) Where like... (laughs) I think you'll find Shane Lynch was the the Robbie Williams of Boyzone, no? That's very harsh on Robbie Williams. (laughs) He's a legend, (laughs) I think. (laughs) He's a bit of a legend, is he? I would have said Keith Duffy was more the... He was a bit more of a cheeky chappy, right? Was Shane Lynch not a bit more serious and kind of like streetwise and streetwise as a dancer <laughs> on the Late Late Show? I don't know. He still feel I'd say though is more Jason Orange, maybe. <sighs> like he was a bit more silent during Boyzone's tenure, but then like later on, like Keith Duffy was in Coronation Street and wasn't Jason Orange? Didn't Jason Orange have like an acting? Really? I thought Jason Orange was all shy and retiring. Adam was agreeing with you. Adam is now saying Stephen Gately was Jason Orange, which I think is probably a fair shout. Although I would have thought Gately was no. Mark Owen. Yeah, no? Gately was Mark Owen. I actually completely Listen, forgot about Mark Owen. They don't compare. Take that forever. <laughs> Even if Gary Barlow took out a hit on Robbie Williams, it doesn't tarnish the music for me. And um, never had any I great loved- love for Boyzone. Go on. You love Twop, uh, I, on. I quite enjoyed the uh, the part B of this news story. Yeah, let's get to well, it. It okay. gets very partridge. Yeah, to say I loved is probably not fair on Robbie Williams and what he was going through at the time. As opposed um, to his entire segment so far. Um, we say this with all love for Robbie Williams, yeah. but it does get very partridge-esque. So yeah, the headline. Robbie Williams recalls gorging on $32 worth of chocolate while asleep. And I love that the news story has in brackets the, um, the uh, trans- sterling tra- <laughs> currency translation or conversion. <laughs> 28 of your Queen's uh, English pounds, British pounds. Um, 
So yeah, this more quotes from Robbie revealing all. Because of Ambien, he said, I ate $32 worth of chocolate. I love that he has the monetary value on the chocolate asleep, completely asleep. Um, so he, listen, he, he suffers from insomnia and he's battled, you know, drug and alcohol addictions and he's spoken quite candidly about that and we wish him well. Um, but yeah, he said he had this sleeping disorder at one point during his 2007 tour, Close Encounters, Back to the UFOs, <laughs> which I love. Or he said he would eat like a monk in the day, but then when he was kind of out of it, he'd finish off the minibar at night. So he said, then at night I'd be taking these Ambien and then I would be eating the minibar, be eating the menu, don't remember any of it, which is yeah, perfectly plausible thing on Ambien. Those things can be very scary. Um, speaking of scary, he also gave his security staff a fright by sleep talking to them while stark naked. <coughs> um, oh, he was on a different podcast for this. Oh, maybe this was the same podcast. No, what was this? Okay, yeah, so one was a Mirror article, which actually, do you know what? The Mirror article was probably just quoting the past weekend podcast, so getting that straight there. And he said, yeah, my security on tour, they'd have the Ambien. I'd be like, can I have them? So they give me it, and then I'd go next door, and then I'd have my Ambien, I'd fall asleep in the Ambien, and then I would get up completely naked, go through the security room and have a conversation with them as lucidly as this, but completely naked and asleep. Then I'd wake up the next morning and I'd say, I didn't do it, did I? And then this look in their eyes would just be like, yes, you did. You did do it. Such a scary uh, thought, obviously, as well, just like the effects that Ambien would probably have on your body over like continued usage. But like also just like the fact that he was eating while he said he was completely that's so dangerous like yeah. you could have choked on now obviously chocolate would melt kind of decently in your mouth while you're eating it but at the same time it could have been a chocolate with nuts or like other kind of things in it that could obviously cause some kind of hazard um while I was found aspects of it like the details not funny but like just the the amount the 32 dollars and then just the image of Robbie Williams sleep talking stark naked um something I can't unsee now actually when I'm uh, talking but um we'll try to unsee it and we can move on (laughs) Um, we wish Robbie Williams all the very very best yeah he's managed to dodge go on anything on Ambien where are we going Do you know what? I once built my own burial chamber under um, a church on the grounds of my estate while I was on Ambien. No, sorry. That wasn't me. That was maybe Ed Sheeran who has submitted proposals. Oh, really? oh my God. <laughs> to build a burial chamber under a private church on his Suffolk estate. Um, he's submitted these proposals, we should say, entirely lucidly. Um, so the plans for, first of all, a boat-shaped church. This wasn't just like a little chapel that happens to be there on the grounds of the state. Um, no, it's a place um, of retreat for contemplation and prayer for Sheeran. Um, has been amended to include the burial space now. Um, <laughs> submitted to Dennington Parish Council in December. And yeah, I don't really know what to say about it. There's a lot going on with this. So I knew he had a massive weird kind of gaff. The property is co- called um, Sheeranville, which is great. Uh, has a main house, um, Winnie's Hall, which he bought about a decade ago now. It's got three adjacent houses. I knew it had a, it's got a pub in the converted barn. It's got a fruit orchard, which is very nice. Heart shaped pond. Luxury Treehouse, which is great. Recording studio, obviously, where he does all this crap music. And a greenhouse. <laughs> Do you know, his last album wasn't bad. Um, as well as an indoor swimming pool and a fitness complex. And I don't know. How do we feel about this 
plan for a burial chamber because I guess, you know, thinking ahead, if you're Ed Sheeran and you've got so much money, you've got Sheeranville, you're thinking ahead of your like legacy, you're probably like, it just feels very throwback English kind of Lord thing of just like generations upon generations will lay to rest on the grounds of my estate that I have built from nothing. And to me, it doesn't scream man of the people. It's the only point I would make, Sarah. Yeah, this story depressed me on a number of levels because like even just even just the detail of his private estate um and some of the things that he has like the pub um the not so much the treehouse that's pretty cool but like to also have the recording studio an indoor swimming pool and a fitness complex it just made me think that about how he's just had to develop this little personal village yeah. And I was like, I wonder, is that because like, because of the levels of fame he has, he just, can't, he can't go anywhere for a quiet pint because it'll just end up on like the front page of the Daily Mail or something like that. And then adding the burial chamber to it just seems like a really grim continuation of that. Like, Yeah, it's a bit really too all in one, world. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I also thought it was like, I know he's put in permission or whatever, but I thought it was illegal to bury a body on a like domestic dwelling I didn't think you could do that That's but I guess if you're a bajillionaire you probably can because there's no yeah and maybe for... if the grounds are like there's different kind of designations for parts of the ground or something uh, I don't I don't know maybe maybe with the church thing he's going to become his own religion maybe that's the next step Red. I don't know um, yeah. listen it did whatever it did makes also him happy just, <laughs> it made him seem kind of selfish because like yeah like I'm sure when he does die. I'm sure fans would like to go visit his grave, like like a kind of graveland. Well, maybe he's going to open the whole thing up. Maybe he is a man of the people and it's not going to be where like, you know, the Sheerans live for the next 500 years. It's just going to become this like, you know, amazing place where people can, you know, they can go to the pub, um, they can maybe do some recording, they can have a swim and they can go to the graveyard. I don't know. I don't know. It's all very strange. kind of genius then, like if he is like, building a, a Graceland kind of empire because then when he dies obviously his estate will be like I mean they're probably well set up anyway like but like they're going to be even more so set up if he has if Sharonville is just a new Graceland That's yeah very you are sinister. kind of you know you have to employ a lot of I don't know the consideration there has to be that he is going to be seen in the same light as Elvis Presley. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe wishful thinking. We'll never know. We probably won't find out um, because that's, you know, that's not even news. That's far, far in the future. Do you know what is news, Sarah? <laughs> Something far, far in the past. It's time for Dave, if he's still listening, to roll his eyes because it's Steely Dan news. It Girl. is Steely <laughs> Girl. Our beloved Steely Dan. Um, this is a nice story. I like this. It mainly because it involves, um, you know, something not great happening to one of the Eagles. Don Henley of the Eagles almost appeared, which I didn't know, on Steely Dan's 1977 hit Peg before he was fired by Steely Dan, according to the band's producer, Gary Katz. I guess paving the way for Michael McDonald's amazing vocals on Peg. What a legend that man is and everything worked out. But yeah, there was this new interview with um, Gary Katz 
And he was talking about how, you know, in the chorus, the background's sort of the lead, which we will all, you know, we all know Peg, of course. Absolute classic. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't like a usual background part, says Katz. So Steely Dan were kind of putting the track together. Um, Katz and Don Fagan were discussing how they both liked um, Don Henley's singing. They decided to bring him in with Linda Ronstadt uh, to track some vocals for the song. Um, so I, th- I think Linda Ronsat didn't um, arrive, which wasn't feeling well. So Nicolette Larson came as well. However, when it came time for Henley to learn the parts, Fagan wanted them to sing. Results weren't great. Um, so the quote from Katz is, there wasn't patience as much as instant reaction of the realities of the moment. We didn't jerk people off by letting them think it was going to work and have them sit for two hours. Fair. Uh, when we knew it wasn't going to be okay, Fagan would tell me to end it. So they sang it again and it was no good. Not long after Fagan singled <laughs> signals for <laughs> bandmate Walter Becker to go get a sandwich with him. <laughs> they both backed off. I love it. As they were leaving the studio, Kat said Fagan told him to fire Henley at Marison. <laughs> And Kat said the command left him with um, my finger up my ass having to fire Henley, which I did, and have heard about for 35 years since <laughs> in various ways, which I can well believe. Yeah, and, um, yeah. So elaborating on what he meant, Kat said, the last time I saw Henley, he sidled up to me, which I guess is how Don Henley approaches everyone, I would assume, Zara. Just sidles up to you. And he said, Are you going to fire me again today, Katz? But he didn't smile when he said it. <laughs> I love it. So um, yeah. I knew about the kind of, there was like a playful rivalry between Steely Dan and the Eagles. And, you know, there's um, there's lyrics about turning up the Eagles because um, the neighbours are listening or whatever in a Steely Dan song. And they just kind of had a bit of back and forth. Um, but apparently they were kind of hanging out in LA, bit of rivalry back in the day. Obviously one far superior band. The Eagles were trash, like the doors, an end of discussions, are do you agree? Yeah, no, you pretty summed it up there. Um I've no dispute there. See it on real. Uh Eagles are terrible. Doors, well, no no even point commenting like they're a woeful band. Um, okay, yeah, let's no, find out. Oh, sorry. Go on, Zara. No, it's just the sandwich detail where you just killed me. I just that image of them going to like a deli. I loved it. <laughs> so great. Okay, let's find out your feelings on this artist. Hit it, Adam. Attention, everyone. One, one. Shut up, Craig on Kanye. Yeah, uh, which should be Craig on Yay, I guess, at this point. And do you know what? I'm looking at the nearly two pages of notes we have on everything Yay's been up to since the show <laughs> went on hiatus. I don't know if I can do it, Zara. I, I I don't know if there's anything you want to say about it, but... Kind of Craig on Kanye. <laughs> but Craig, A lot's been going on. A lot's been going on. Uh, there's two quotes I want to call to people's attention. Just uh, We're cutting through the nonsense around Ye at the moment. And there's two quotes. There's one direct quote from Ye where he says, I haven't been the best Christian lately, <laughs> which is fair enough. <laughs> kind of sums up a lot. And there's another quote from this guy who was doing an interview with him recently where he said... He's been in the studio every day for hours on hours on hours working on. Don't you want to say it? You, baby. It's happening. <laughs> it's happening. 
watch this space and that is Craig on Yay and that's the end of the news so it is album slash mixtape review time um, it's a good one to come back on it's a big name it's FK Twigs and here's the opener from Capri Songs it's Ride the Dragon the opener there from Capri Songs um, 17 track strong mixtape it is the follow up to Magdalene um, which was a proper LP released about two-ish years ago this kind of came out of the blue-ish for me I know we'd had the, the song with the weekend feature um, Tears in the Club and she'd been working on stuff but I think we got maybe a week lead in with the PR thing and I guess the conversation around this is that it's uh, FK Twigs trying something a bit different. So for people that aren't up to speed with FK Twigs, um, I guess she came to people's attention about a decade ago at this point with EP1, um, really marked her out as a major talent, set London-based artist, um, songwriter, producer, dancer, multi-talent. EP2 followed and was similarly tremendous. And then we got LP1, which like continued the prosaic names, but yeah, the music within was anything but. So just really shape-shifting stuff, risk-taking pop, uh, can't really throw enough superlatives at it. Um, she kind of kept busy thereafter on screen doing songs for the next few years, but it was a five-year wait until 2019's Magdalene, which was definitely worth it. I believe it was no encore's album for that year, so all that effort really paid off, Twigs. Um, and it was an intense listen, like it was documenting this, I guess, all-encompassing heartbreak on a personal level, just really simple kind of piano lines acting as these foundations for quite like operatic examinations of the soul. It was fractured and it was interesting and... Um, yeah, it was kind of, for me, something for the ages from subject matter that, you know, others had kind of mined for tabloid headlines around her, um, which will probably happen again with this very, very different release. And this is her finding a bit of joy and finding a lot of hope. It's kind of carnal. It's feel good. Um, the artist herself has put out a statement, maybe just kind of cherry pick a few quotes from it. So Twig says, in the first lockdown, I called around my team hinting that maybe I'd hit the end of the road making music and putting my insides on blast, how I have done for the last few years. Felt nice playing with the idea of not creating for the world. So instead, she says, I listen to podcasts. I spoke to my friends loads on FaceTime. Isolating alone, I would pop uh, my girlfriends on loudspeaker and pot around my house listening to them natter on about this and that. Um... So she goes on to say essentially that this kind of period of isolation but connecting with people online um, led her to open up a bit more to, you know, working in collaboration with people kind of for the first time. Um, she was recording her friends talking as well simultaneously and weaving it throughout this kind of building mixtape, like a kind of narrative of her healing, she says. And um, yeah, I feel like maybe with this mixtape she's encroaching on our territory. It could almost be a podcast, could it? We don't need that kind of rivalry. And it's what she's saying is her response to where the world has been at in recent times to me it sounds very like of the moment in terms of you know we could rollerize it like oh here's another pandemic album but it doesn't feel like it like it's kind of it's ready to get a post-pandemic party started it's an album for kind of cutting yourself some slack maybe getting back together it does feel quite communal to me 
Zara, how did it strike you? How did you get on with this mixtape? Um, I so I would really like FK Twigs music, especially Michelin. Yeah. I thought that album was just exceptional. Um, it's such a even though it's quite a sparse album, it's such a warm listen as well. In in a weird way, this uh, this mixtape. Sorry, um, <laughs> I was intrigued by it. I will say, um, especially like seeing some of the reviews that were coming out and saying that like it was kind of less experimental than we're used to from her. Um, it was a bit more of a shift towards the mainstream, which I think was definitely evident with Tears in the Club. Um, even like my listens to the to the mixtape this week, um, that song in particular just really made me hear that more as a weekend song than a FK Twig song. Okay, and that was like something that I struggled with a little bit with this album. I do think that the song that we heard there, Ride the Dragon, it's really interesting. The production is really nice. The beats are really um, engaging. And then there are some other moments like Meta Angel, which I think is a really great song. Yeah. It's one of my standouts, which way is interesting too. But I just kind of felt that there was a lot of bloat on this mixtape. Um, and kind of going back to what you were saying of like, it sounded very off the moment. It certainly does. And even down to the kind of voice note inclusions, like punctuating the, the mixtape and like serving as like little interludes or introductions or outros even. Like we've heard that kind of style from say self-esteem um, it also reminded me a lot of maybe like little sims in a different kind of way and yeah. I, I think Even just Adele the, recently with the kind of the voice, voice notes about her yeah, kind of divorce I haven't and, listened to that album so I, I can't uh, can't comment on that <laughs> big release <Yeah. laughs> everyone's um, talking about it <laughs> <laughs> I'll check it out um, but I, I just found that the sort of like ca- camouflaging and like setting settling in so well to like the perceived sound of the moment was a really off-putting thing for me because that is what I really loved about um, her previous releases is that they stood out so much from what everyone else was doing. Um, and it's weird then hearing her do like a very Grimes 2012 like Visions era song on like Which Way, which would, which Mike Dean has a songwriting credit on as well. Yeah, Mike Dean's on it and there's... Warren Ellis is on it. Warren Ellis is on like a kind of interlude almost. There's a, there's a lo- huge amount of collaborations going on here and at times you're like, is she kind of squandering great music buried underneath where it's this kind of like just chatter over it of her mates talking about like, you know, very banal kind of love yourself platitudes are just stuff that seems surface level. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it didn't entirely work for me um, because even though there are some, you know, really nice spacious arrangements and she really lets all the textures and tones speak for themselves a lot. Um, and she also explores, say, like dancehall music, a lot more R&B style, um, some kind of straight run of the mill pop I found, and even though it is actually, it's 17 songs, but it's 48 minutes. So it's like a standard album length that we're used to. 
I found this felt so long and by my kind of fourth, fifth lesson, I was really getting tired of it. Um, And I was looking forward to not have to go back to it. Like there are songs that I really liked, say like Meta Angel, Ride the Dragon, Oh My Love, I think is great. I quite like the closing song, Panky song. But I can't imagine myself listening to this from start to finish again, because even though there are big sounds within its minimalism, it just felt quite thin and not even indulgent because there is actually some nice personality and personal moments throughout, but it's not a record I enjoyed spending time with. What about you? That's really interesting because I had the exact opposite experience. (laughs) Just because it is, and you're bang on, it's like an album where, you know, she's, dabbling in genres and stuff or diving into the mainstream for maybe the first proper time but to me it still all felt very twigs you know it's it's an album of features but it still felt kind of all twigs even on the you know the weekend feature um which i thought worked kind of pretty well or better in the context of the album when it cuts to big abel he's kind of putting the spotlight back on her it's still her perspective and he's just it struck me listening to it in its entirety that she's the focus she's it's almost like she's moving through this kind of party the camera's on her and you're getting fleeting glimpses of other people or just kind of cameos and that to me was a good thing because going into this I was like gearing up to not particularly like it and certainly all the voice note stuff I mean really if I look at it logically and break it down I'm like this is this could be nails on chalkboard stuff I could find this deeply infuriating we all know long time listeners to the show will know I load a skit I, it's ruined <laughs> as many great albums as it's improved um, it's just like none um, and so many of these are like we're, we're really into you know my Facebook story territory which you know is the, my one issue with Frank Ocean's Blonde it's all that kind of chatter but I think actually the overall tone of the record it's quite tongue-in-cheek. I feel like it's meta. Like, you know, with Magdalene, where she was very much examining herself and kind of then womanhood to a wider extent, and she was kind of manipulating her own image and, like, the archetype of womanhood and playing around with that as a concept. With this, it feels like she's... Like, it is... It's basically... It is an album, but she's playing around with this mixtape kind of party playlist kind of world, and she's giving her own kind of commentary and twist on that thing. And she's kind of using it as like another mask. Although I do think she was very open, particularly on the closing track. Um, and just kind of like, it's it's something, it's a new way for her to funnel her, her energy. I just thought the songs were really strong. Like, I, yeah, Meta Angel, I love. But even some more of the bangers, like a track like when she's dipping into dancehall, like Poppy Bones, I was like, this is exactly the kind of song that I would normally just be like, this is not doing anything for me. It's fine, but it's just, it's not working. And I was kind of nearly like halfway through the album for a run with the record, or sorry, the mixtape, and <laughs> really enjoying it thus far. And it was like, as that was kicking in, I'm like, I'm probably, this probably isn't going to be one for me. And then halfway through, I'm like, this is very much for me because I thought the melodies and the melodies throughout on every layer, on every instrument, on all of the vocals felt strong to me. And I replayed Pappy Bones <laughs> about three times in a row because I was like, it actually, the best thing about it is the final third. 
And there's a few songs where I was thinking the hooks keep building as the song progressed to my ears to the extent that I was like, you could kind of dismiss this record as a bit thin and being like, okay, she kind of threw it together. Just, you know, something that was really working for her at the time. And it was like spur of the moment thing. But there's clearly a lot of like work that's gone into this. And I felt like the quality of the songwriting was there. Bear in mind, as you say, yeah, there is, you know, she is dabbling in styles that if it's going to, you know, rub you the wrong way at all. It might scupper some of the stuff. I completely get the opinion um, that like she was, she's been doing such singular daring stuff that to suddenly turn her attention to um, more kind of crowded lanes where, you know, some of the best stuff on this, it could be a kind of Charlie XEX song. It's like, is that what we kind of need or want from Twigs? But to me, shockingly, against all odds, it was, it turned out it was what I kind of needed. <laughs> and it kind of put me in a good mood this week. Like, I really did. It felt like, it felt like, okay, maybe we're coming out of like um, the new normal or whatever. It felt very generous as a record. It felt frivolous in all the kind of right ways where it just wasn't, it kind of w- was wearing all its influences and its features quite lightly. And I just think that's a testament to her kind of skills. So, I mean, maybe, I, I know you're kind of in agreement that there is there is a number of songs in this that are particularly strong. I thought, you know, even the kind of more tied together moments didn't really lag. Um, the short kind of tracks, like that vibe of it being, you know, 17 tracks, it had that kind of like, almost like a white album vibe where it's just like it's a, it's a kind of it's a lengthy enough record but there's so much switch ups that it actually didn't drag to me unlike your experience and actually yeah I really got on with this I think I'll go back to it a, a fair bit and I'm I'm kind of surprised as you probably are but that was my experience <laughs> with it yeah 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 that's interesting because like if there was just I found like when I was kind of making my notes on certain songs like like Poppy Bones, um, I was just kind of like while it is re- like really infectious and it does kind of get into your skin a bit and it does get you like in a zone. I just kind of felt that like it was a bit of a copy paste job of a dancehall track. Like I kind of felt like I'd heard a song sim- like similar to it. It just didn't have any kind of individuality to me. And I get like obviously Twigs' presence is the individuality because her voice is kind of unparalleled. Nobody can sing like her. And I love the acrobatics that she can do with her voice and how she uses it. But there was just so many times where I kind of felt like, I feel like I've heard this arrangement before. And just going back to some of the um, people who had the songwriting credits, like Mike Dean and Lauren Ellis, I just felt that like to have those people in particular and not have their kind of distinct style come out more just mm. felt like a bit of a waste. Um, the Warren Ellis thing did really throw me. So I, I yeah, yeah. this because there's like, it didn't seem that indulgent to me because I felt that there was a lot, there's a lot of ideas there and there's a lot of strong melodies and there's a lot of really interesting production layers and stuff of like, I can imagine if there were certain bits you kind of really loved going, oh, well, this is one direction she could have amplified and made her soul focus and made more of a twigs different thing. So I can understand the frustration of being, you know, her, she's kind of like, skimming across the surface of a load of different styles and you know trying on different things and 
it's certainly not that cohesive apart from the kind of the dressing of it being a mixtape and the increasingly infuriating voice notes that somehow kind of work for me. So I can understand how we just hold her in such high regard, I guess. And we're kind of like patiently awaiting her next move. And it feels like every new kind of big release should be this grand statement because she's so capable of it. And this isn't that. So no. yeah. Yeah. But I had a lot of fun with it and I had my fun, Zara. And that's all I'm <laughs> Numerically, how does that fun uh, look? I'm, I'm going to give this an eight. I really got on with it. I think, you know, we're probably in agreement that I think if people give it at least one listen, you'll probably find a handful of songs that you'll take away anyway and put in your own mixtape, you know? Yeah. Um, so what would your your rating out of 10 be? Six. Six. Okay. Not bad, um, but not quite good enough, unfortunately, yes, yeah. for FKA Twigs. <laughs> but um, <laughs> do you know what, actually, just... any time, I'm sure. Yeah. Before we wrap up on it, like, there seems to be... You know, from what she's saying, this was recorded over a fair amount of time. But there seemed to be some murmurings of she had something else kind of prepared that she felt was a bit heavy. And then this came together quite quickly. And I'm not sure if I agree with that, but do, do you feel like this felt like a lighter thing that she just had fun doing and that actually maybe there was a grander work that we haven't heard as yet? Cause it, yeah, for I mean, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, no, well, sure. well, maybe that will arrive. And when it does, we will review it on this show. <laughs> you can count on that. So that's our album review of Mixtape. And let's move on to our final segment of the first show of 2022. And it's a biggie. It's our top five. It's our top five days of the week songs. So, Zara, criteria-wise... Um, you asked me and I actually, hold on, we should get to the origins of the the days of the week thing. So I can't quite remember because it gets quite convoluted when we try and come up with these things. I think it was because this week had Blue Monday in it. Oh yeah, <laughs> I was thinking of Blue Monday teams and then it's like, oh, Monday's a day of the week. We could do days of the week songs. And you were you were like, what's the criteria? And I said, I, I, it has to have a day of the week in the title. So we're going to be rigorous about that, Sarah. No, like, weekends or any of this kind of stuff or illusions, right? Is that cool? What? We weren't allowed to have... No, you can have, you can have like Saturday or Sunday, oh but you can have like something for the weekend. Because oh, I did give that consideration. I had a sleepless night about that, of course. Um, yeah. Or eight so, days a week by the Beatles. Exactly. So yeah. what have we got? We've got Monday. We've got Tuesday. You've got Wednesday as well. Thursday. And then you've got your Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and kind so, of in that vein, I was really sad that I couldn't have Craig David seven days. Because <laughs> like it fits almost the criteria. Yeah, devastating news. Uh, <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> Spoilers. I was trying to work to a thing um, where I was going to be like, okay, I'm just picking, you know, only like you can only have a track for one particular day. And I said that to you yesterday and you were like, life's too short, Craig. Um, so actually I dispensed with that. <laughs> you inspired me to live in the moment. So let's kick off with your number five um, as guest co-host, Sarah. What have you got for us? Okay, so kind of aptly to start off my uh, top five, we're going to go to the very start of the week. So Adam, if you would like to press play. Monday, Monday, so good to me. Monday morning. 
Sunday by the Mamas and the Papas, the classic Californian sound of the 1960s, mm. those harmonies. We love to hear it. Um, yeah, that, this was a, a late inclusion for me in my top five. Um, funnily, though, because it was one of the first songs that I did think of, um, but I just kind of put it on the back burner for a while. Um, I'm a, a moderate fan of the Mamas and the Papas, I would say. Craig, what about you, you fan? Same. I, I couldn't call myself a fan just because I, I couldn't start listing off like, you know, album tracks and stuff. But when the Mamas and the Papas come on, I do love it. <laughs> like, Yeah. Um, and this is from their first album from 1966. And what I found um, fascinating, I didn't know this before, was that the Wrecking Crew were their band so they oh, played wow. on this yeah so Hal Blaine like, is on drums um, there's some like funny little kind of um, anecdotes about it where uh, Denny Doherty who sang the vocals for this song he really didn't like this song um, he said uh, when they recorded it he was like nobody likes Monday so I thought it was just a song about the working man nothing about it stood out to me it was a dumb fucking song um, which I think is so funny to be so like passive aggressive about like such a sweet and otherwise like warm and buoyant song um john phillips says that he wrote the song in about 20 minutes which i also think like not to be dismissive of the song but i do think it sounds like it was quickly put together just because like it has those like sweeping kind of chords and all that kind of stuff. It's very easy to kind of connect the dots in terms of the melodies and the kind of lyrical. Like when you hear Tom York talk, talk about how like Street Spirit, I wrote that in like 10 minutes. You're like, oh, come on. Did you really? Are you just making some mythic thing of like, but you know, you can totally hear this just kind of arriving with a, you know, a few strums of the chords. Kind of like jamming it out, like uh, yeah. back style. But what I found also quite funny about this, so... This is the album, of course, where the artwork is where they're on the bath. You know that one? Okay. Yeah, um, so it was uh, it was an issue quite controversial because um, because it showed the band sitting in a bathtub. And the controversial thing about it, and the record was actually pulled from stores because there was a toilet visible on the cover, which um. people found offensive. And then there was um, a second, pre- like, iteration of the artwork where um California Dreaming is like written quite big over the toilet so you can't really see it as much. Yeah. Um and it went on to have five different versions of the artwork because of the toilet. Oh, controversial. I this this was running running through my head uh throughout the week. I do like this song. It it's really pleasant to listen to. And what I always kind of liked about it though but I didn't really dig deep into it was lyrically it's like that pleasant thing of a Monday it's like doing the opposite of what you would expect a Monday song to do right so it's mm. not like the kind of what a drag it is it's kind of weirdly kind of ironic in its cheeriness I think it was used in like a lotto ad as well wasn't it wasn't it like an Irish lotto ad where it's someone that's like quit their job because they've won and they're on like a yacht or something and it's yeah. like Monday Monday that's my you know abiding memory of this song <laughs> And then my final little bit of trivia about it is that uh, Monday Monday was the first Hot 100 chart topper with a day in the week in its title and the only one with Monday. Uh, Manic Monday by the Bangles and Rainy Days and Mondays by the Carpenters both stalled at number two. So there you go. It's the Ooh, only successful Monday well. song. That's interesting. And a very, yeah, early days for kind of days of the week songs. Because I was thinking, you know, 
I was thinking going in there would be a lot of contenders or at least like qualified songs but I found the truly great ones were a bit tin on the ground there's something about like lyrically going to a day of the week I think that it's kind of an easy songwriting shorthand it just lets you start listing things like days of the week kind of might you know encourage a certain laziness so there's a lot of those kind of songs and speaking of laziness I went with (laughs) as my number five (laughs) This was inspired by Zara being all like, you know, Carpe Diem, Seize the Day. So I went with a very familiar song to fans of this show. It's the strokes. That's me living in the moment there. Why are Sundays so depressing? My boys, the new abnormal. Lazy because I had a clip from when this album (laughs) featured in our albums of the year 2020. So there was that. But you know what? I would have been lying to myself if I didn't include it because I think this is, along with the adults are talking, my most played song from the new abnormal, which is by now my most played strokes album. I try on this all of the time, which I'm kind of a bit shocked by. Real return to form for the Strokes. I think this is a great example of them recapturing, I think, the, fair to say, the coolness that they'd somewhat lost over the years, where they just, like, things weren't quite working out for them. Every songwriting session, recording session, you know, and the resulting album seemed laboured, and Julian was bringing in his quite strange ideas from The Voids, and the rest of the band weren't kind of simpatico with that. This is finally the sound of a band starting to incorporate new ideas, finally. And there's a kind of looseness to this that weren't on the first two records. And there's that kind of wow, wow, wow thing, which I think actually works somehow. Testament to the song. But it also being kind of quintessentially Strokesian in terms of it just sounds very New York. It sounds very cool. Incorporates Julian's falsetto in a really cool, breezy way. And it's kind of, yeah, it's the sound of, it's like a post-hangover sound to me. It's like shaking something off. It's not a grim Sunday song. I'm including it even though when it came out, it was why are Sundays apostrophe S so depressing. It infuriated me for like a week. This was up on Spotify. I just hate when nouns are mistakenly made possessive. That's my own problem. I need to get over it. Uh, I do think it's a great, great song. And it does that like 1251 thing of like, a guitar line that sounds like it could be a synth line, which is quite like Blondie's new wave kind of style back in late 70s, early 80s. It's just cool. It's great. It's got the, you know, the click was always a new fab thing going on. And yeah, it's loose. It's cheeky. Uh, It's my number five. Yeah, that's a great shout. I actually um, completely forgot about this song. But during the week when I was like trying to, pick my top five and I was trying to like rattle my brain as to like bands who would have like days of the week that I need to like check double check the strokes was one that I was like oh, the strokes definitely have a day of the week song and I was like okay I must check that out and then I just forgot and then I finalized on my top five um 
But the new abnormal was an album that I was really pleasantly surprised by. I quite enjoyed that. Um, and I didn't expect the lads to make such a, a buoyant return, which was great. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm no, really glad to uh, to hear them, uh, your boys. Okay, today's Friday for the listener. <laughs> Cheer up, Sarah. It's like phase two of the hangover kicking in and hour number two of the podcast. Go on. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks, Craig. Um, so it's Friday for the listener, not for us. It's Thursday. So to add another day into the mix, uh, let's all look forward to getting into Saturday night. Oh, wow. Down in the cold. Dreaming of him Saturdays that came before it's found you stumbling, stumbling onto the heart of Saturday night. And you're stumbling, stumbling onto the heart of Saturday night. So that was Tom Waits uh, looking for the hardest Saturday night, which of course is the uh, titular track of his second album from 1974. Um, I saw Licorice Pizza last week in the cinema, which is very good. Highly recommend. Didn't know that Tom Waits was in it. It's a spoiler yeah. if you're listening to this and didn't know that. I'm very sorry. He crops up and he's like brilliant in it. Um, just such a amazing person to watch and just so captivating yeah um and him just being in my mind the last couple of days having seen the film immediately made me think of this song i was like savage like i have this that's gonna be my top five um and what i love about it is i love how it's it's very like sentimental it's a really sweet melody um it's really mournful and even though it's like the song title would make you think that it's going to be like and it is like a celebration of like remembered Saturday nights with your friends and the ceremony of like combing your hair and giving yourself a little shave like before you hope to get the smooch uh, um, what I getting on your white disco boots yeah I remember yeah. it well Sarah we'll get back there someday <laughs> one day um, but I love how like it, there's such a communal kind of aspect to the stories that he shares in this song but the arrangement is just so lilting and it's as I said it's really mournful and I just love how even though it's a communal thing and we all think of Saturday nights possibly with our friends and memories of that I feel that the execution of this song is so solitary and it's so mm. um he's just saying so alone and listening to this song kind of repeatedly during the week was a real kind of highlight um also kind of sounds like the hangover has really hit in for Tom Waits <laughs> as well after all these Saturday nights but yeah it's a very beautiful song and I could not have it on my list it's a great song I love it he's in peak kind of barfly mode at this stage and mm. still kind of early career hasn't quite moved into his most distinctive I guess you know creatively out there mode as yet but I love I loved the debut record and then all the 70s stuff is great he's, he kind of hasn't really put a foot wrong um mm. a friend of the show Carlo I know is a huge Tom Waits fan and he shared a play with this with me ages ago um I was already into Tom Waits but it was a nice way into stuff I hadn't got to which was great 
and I I deeply angered him uh, over the Christmas because I spent the Christmas post get back getting into a lot of Paul McCartney solo stuff, <laughs> which was great, particularly around like New Year's where you're like not up to much and you're just going for like runs and being healthy and you're listening to Ram, which is just like country Paul. It's great. It's good for the soul. I was very excited about Paul McCartney being a lovely guy and inventing like every musical genre ever. And I sent Carlo a message where I was like, Monkberry Moon Delight. And I was just like, this is just Paul casually inventing Tom Waits. And Carlo was like, listen, we could say about every other invention, like we can give that to Paul McCartney, uh, but we can't give him Tom Waits, which is fair enough. Tom Waits is his own man. Tom Waits for no man. Said jokes are as made recently, which is amazing. (laughs) And a great, amazing pick. And let's move on to my number four. It's enough carefree fun for me. Uh, Here's another song that doesn't actually mention the day in the lyrics. Um, It's another kind of recent ish one as well. Um, here it is. Here's my number four. Run the Jewels, it's Thursday in the Danger Room. It's not the greatest Thursday song, that is the Pet Shop Boys, but I've picked them before, so some rules can't be broken, and you can go listen to that in your own time. This is an amazing song, though. It's probably the best track on Run the Jewels Tree, I reckon, from 2016. Penultimate track, and... Certainly at the time, their most kind of open and personal song and they're not really dueling um, LP and Mike in terms of trading bars, but thematically it's similar, just them talking about kind of losses, um, different kind of losses they've suffered. And as always, there's some social commentary in there. It's really, there's just some amazing lines in there. Um, It's a bit of a choker, but also two things it's just it's a great gliding vibe because you've Kamasi Washington on it with his incredible kind of cosmic sax which just works so well here and it's like it's basically a ballad it's top provoking it's a tearjerker but the beat is so great as well that you can kind of bounce along to it it just is this strange hybrid thing like it's it's something new I think for Run the Jewels at that moment in time and you know some of the conversation we've had about them is like can they be a bit one note are they a kind of you know ACDC of you know kind of conscious rap in terms of they are in one lane and they do it better than anyone else but they don't really deviate you know too far away from it I think this is a slight deviation um, while still having their DNA and it's yeah it's great mm-hmm. it's um, yeah sorry Zara go on no, no, it was just a great pick. Um, I remember, uh, I think I reviewed this album with you guys. Yeah. Um, five, over just, five years ago now? Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. We've been doing this show too long. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I remember not really having many highlights from that album and that uh, clip there has just kind of reminded me to go back and check that album out again. So. Yeah, it was, you know, it's a good record. I think when we reviewed the fourth, we were saying it felt like the moment when were they kind of out of things to say? This was like, okay, they're doing something a bit different, but the rest of it wasn't quite sustaining it. And 
it's pretty it's it's good quality I think the fourth is probably superior but yeah there's some absolute gems and this is one of them that's my number four hmm. I won um okay uh it's my number three now um I mean, where to even begin with this? And okay, I actually should preface that I am, um, I was anxious about my top five all day. And it's because, Craig, as you would say to me, I went a bit too discerning, I think. Okay. Um, so this is the moment, I think, on my top five where things just take off into like a kind of left turn. I'm excited. Where, where, uh, Friday's Child is my number three, but there's a few songs called Friday's Child and it's perhaps not the Friday's Child that you would think it would be. Oh my God. Okay. So it's not <laughs> Lee? No. Nancy? No. Neither? No. <laughs> what is it? Play the clip. <laughs> you got something that they all want to know. Gotta hold on and never, never let go. Whoa, fried child, you can't stop now. No, no. Whoa, fried child, you cannot stop. Yes, yeah, so that was actually uh, Van Morrison and Ben's version. What have you done? There. What have you done? <laughs> Craig so much um, yeah I'm actually I have the shakes again now they've just returned I got rid of them and they're back now Do you know how relieved I am because I was dreadfully afraid of the day when I would probably have to pick like Sweet Thing in a top five and then talk about justifying Van Morrison and you've now set a precedent so it's grand it's fine it's open season on all of his admittedly great stuff um yeah, it's a lovely version. Two <laughs> um, great song as well. I knew the song was. I was. I had like the Lee version in my shortlist, and I was like, "This isn't the same song at all." Oh, it's not actually. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually. Yeah, is, it's totally different. It's totally different. Yeah. Um. So this was recorded by them in 1965. So them were obviously the rock group that Van Morrison was originally with. They formed in 1964. They were more so regarded as a live band. And that was kind of in part because a lot of the time Van Morrison, when he was singing on stage with Adlib and songs like Gloria, their best known hit, would turn into these like 20 minute opuses um, your boys uh, The Doors and Jim Morrison <laughs> in particular were massive fans of them um, and there was a point where uh, them had a residency at the famous Whiskey Gogo in LA and in the final week of their residency The Doors actually opened for them which uh, would have been a nice little double bill oh, yeah, so I have a kind of controversial take now um I don't you love think... the doors no I don't love the doors <laughs> um major problem with I... licorice pizza by the way inclusion of the doors the most controversial <laughs> thing about that film <laughs> on my viewing uh, anyway sorry Zara um I obviously can appreciate that Van Morrison as we hear that song is I think it's an incredible song. His vocals are amazing, especially when he's like howling that you can't stop now and that growl like leading up to the chorus. It's just great. I have always, since I was about a teenager, 
always preferred his work with them than his solo work. And I'm not including um, Greatest Record Project Volume 1 in that. Um, I'm kind Glad of more... You that. <laughs> I don't know the Dem stuff at all, really, which clearly because I was just like, oh, he's doing a really interesting interpretation of this liaison. <laughs> As he's just vamping with his vocals, I'm like, wow, he's taking in strange new directions. So maybe I need to acquaint myself um, yeah, with them a bit more. I used, to, I used to listen to them a lot more when I was younger. I haven't really done it recently outside of like Here Comes the Night, which obviously is an amazing song. Um, Glory is great. Uh, of course, this song I just think is phenomenal. But I, there's just something about the kind of rawness and the unbridled nature of Morrison's performances across the songs. And maybe that is because they did feel foremost as a live band, as a poster record band. They've always kind of said that they were never really as happy with their records as they were, or as they could have been, or maybe should have been. Um, And I also just wanted to kind of explore the morgue a bit more with the top five and have people that I haven't had before and also maybe listeners haven't heard this song before so it's a good like insight and introduction yeah I'm gonna have a proper listen after the show so uh, in that regard a good inclusion although now I'm thinking of like I didn't put Morrissey in this list because of some of the things he said (laughs) and maybe every day like someone I should be in anyway my number three (laughs) My number three is, yeah, it's a song where it just kind of lists in days. It's it, <laughs> the, the singer, the songwriter was like, I don't think anyone's done this before. They were doing it in the 60s, but I don't know if anyone did it better than this. Best Goth Lads, <laughs> The Cure, Friday I'm in Love, and Robert Smith has an interesting relationship with this song. It came out in 1992. I think it was the end of their like purple patch of like really bright, um, massive pop hits. And he said before that it's interesting that they're kind of portrayed as these gloomy goth types when like the guy, you know, the taxi driver or like the person on the street knows him as the bloke that sings Friday I'm in Love, which is really chirpy. And depending on the kind of year or the interview, he will give a different opinion on this song. So he'll say it's kind of completely dumb. He'll say that like it's just he doesn't have any time for whatsoever. And then there's interviews where he says it's one of my three favourite Cure singles ever and he says actually it was harder writing the dumb lyrics so he came up with the song when he'd been in the pub with the lads which is very Robert Smith and it was a Friday and he was very excited about it being Friday (laughs) and he was like hey guys has anyone ever done like the days of the week which they definitely done and he's like oh no I feel really good about this idea I'm going to write this song like taking that kind of journey and um, he had this chord progression which is magnificent and he's like 
I was convinced that this was a different song. It was very much like the Paul McCartney yesterday thing of like him ringing people up and playing it and being like, have you heard this song before? Does this exist? And everyone's like, no, no, no. Um, so it kind of, yeah, apparently just fell into place, tumbled into place. It was like a Monday, Monday thing. And here it is. And it's great. I love the kind of glistening, like guitars. It's almost like a kind of birds thing going on. Uh, along with those keys, it just totally floats as a song you need to kind of be in the mood for it I was thinking is this very very obvious and then when I put it on I'm like no this has kind of improved my day has to be in the cure are great the cure for life um, Robert Smith oh, over Morrissey oh, so yeah he takes my, my third spot very nice um, this was a song that I did think of um, kind of like you I, I do did think oh is it a bit like cheesy or it's a bit obvious but then when you it do definitely listen, is. yeah it is no it is but then when you listen to it, it there's just so much fun in it and it is kind of like not the most classic cure sounding song as well which just makes it a bit more endearing for like what they were t- trying to do um, and yeah. I always love a good Robert Smith meme so excellent shout a very Craig shout and I'm, I'm glad of Thank it um, okay so my silver medal this week Okay, Craig, this is another moment where things are a bit controversial. So my number two. (laughs) God knows where we're going now. (laughs) My number two is a song called Sunday Morning, but it's not the Sunday morning. Oh, I see what you're doing. Okay, okay. Adam, take it away. Okay. I sense we're still in the 60s. Would that be correct? 68. So the okay. year after the Velvet's, uh, Velvet's Own Sunday Morning. Um, this song, I had been really intrigued by this album. So do you know much about Margot Gurian? I know absolutely nothing about her, no. Okay. Um, it's an album that I think you will really enjoy, Craig. You may even know the album artwork. Um, she had a, she was a one and done basically she had a 1968 album called Take a Picture uh, okay. this song featured on it but it was kind of more so known as a hit for um, Spanky and Our Gang um, it was also uh, covered by Bobby Gentry and Glenn Campbell they did a version of it in 1968 and there's kind of parts of the arrangement where it really fits in with Bobby Gentry's style um, I must dig out uh, any kind of footage of that performance outside the class. So basically she was born in New York. Um, she studied jazz piano at Boston University. And she just really wanted to be a songwriter. She never had a lot of confidence in her voice, which is kind of really surprising because I really like her voice uh, across the album, but especially on that song. Um, it's got that kind of real 60s breathy tone to it. Um, yeah. Also sounds very like, you know, Melody's Echo Chamber. It sounds like she was very, influenced I think by this album 
Um, and yeah, I just really liked this song. I thought it'd be another kind of different kind of twist as opposed to going for the easy ones. Um, Bit pointed there, <laughs> no but anyway. Shade, no shade. <laughs> like, you know, the cure. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I can sense that I'm going to love this song. Vocally, yeah, I was in like the realms of like Vashti Bunyan or something like that. But it's like folk meets... Like there's definitely kind of hints of R&B in there, like a fifth yeah. dimension, just kind of like psychedelic R&B thing. So it's, yeah, right up my street. Yeah, the album the album is brilliant. Um, I highly okay, recommend right. you check that out. But she kind of just had the one album. She continued to write songs. Uh, Harry Belafonte recorded one of her songs. She was really inspired actually before I this album she heard uh, God Only Knows on uh, Pet Sounds and that really shook up her approach to songwriting and composition she just really liked the kind of pop aspect to it but she didn't tour a lot she didn't want to be famous she didn't want to be a touring musician and she kind of lay dormant then for a while and then she was rediscovered in the 90s and that album Take a Picture became a bit of a cult cult classic if you will okay Definitely want to check out. And here comes Mr. Obvious with his runner up. <laughs> contemplating on Wednesday night uh, cutting a clip of Charles Mings's Wednesday night prayer meeting I was like oh, I, should, I should have gone ahead with it you know I was like is this too clever clever mm. had to go with the velvets it's the velvet underground it's Sunday morning I yeah adore this song really relaxing reassuring song about drug paranoia yeah. <laughs> um, and the story, I do you know what I love the most about the Velvets is that like, despite all the kind of myth around them and the Lou Reed image and stuff, they were kind of sellouts from the start. This was a song, it was like the final song recorded for the Velvet Underground and Nico. And it was like, you know, a request where um, I think Tom Wilson just told Lou Reed you need another song with Nico singing. And it has to be possibly, you know, a big single. Um, spoilers, it wasn't. And spoilers, Nico didn't sing it. Um, Lou Reed was so enamoured with it he's like I'll just sing this one so Nico's singing kind of backing vocals in a really great Nico um, bit of trivia she thought it was sun day morning as in sun then day then M-O-U or N-I-N-G which is like her version would have been so dark (laughs) and instead we get this like beautiful thing of like John Cale playing the like Celeste kind of thing it's just twinkling it's very like I do like that debut record there's some great songs on it but I find myself just gravitating with the Velvets way more towards the like kind of childlike pop songs basically I think Lou Reed invented like twee like indie rock or indie pop he is the man who created it all aside from all the like the heroin kind of you know 
waiting for the man, just out and out rockers and the black letter and the kind of the fetish parties and all of that. He just invented Twee. And those are the songs that I listen to. I'll be your mirror. And, you know, I'm sticking with you. I think they were his best stuff. His solo career stuff has a really gorgeous, distorted, like lullaby um, quality to them. And this is one of the best examples of this. So it's just... Yeah, it's about a dark thing. It's, you know, Andy Warhol was like, write a song about coming off the drugs. And this is what Lou Reed came up with. And it's beautiful. Yeah. And I do think, like, I love this song. Um, I do love it. Um, and it's one that, like, I think I would gravitate to the most when I want to just stick on a Velvet song, especially yeah. when I'm walking. I find I love listening to this when I'm walking um, because I think that just the mood and the instrumentation of the song just really reminds me of um, the long gone days of when you'd be at like a house party and you might stay until like five in the morning or something and you come yeah. out and the street is bright it's like morning and it has that lovely kind of pastely blue and you can see like the moon and the sky that's what this song like really perfectly captures for me yeah um, and I just love love Lou's voice in it as well it's very sweet all right, Sarah, it's time. Are we going to get, are we going to be in for a shock with <laughs> your number one? Oh, we are. Okay, God. I think so. Do you want to uh, give us an intro or are we just going to get straight in? Um, so it's another song that focuses on Sunday mornings, but one Sunday morning in particular, Adam. Outside I look lived in One Sunday morning, uh, parentheses, song for Jane Smiley's boyfriend by Wilco features on their uh, their 2011 album, The Whole Love. Um, this is a kind of late uh, addition to my top five. It was when I was doing my yeah, Wilco. They have a they have a song surely with days of the weeks in it, and actually, The Whole Love is not one of their albums that I go to a lot. It's one I actually kind of overlook a lot, but I've been yeah, really enjoying yeah. getting stuck into it this week. Um, this song uh, closes the album out. It's uh, 12 minutes long and it kind of ruminates on that very tender instrumentation you hear of the soft uh, guitar picking. It's got lovely um, vibraphone on it as well, which really kind of adds to the buoyancy, um, which is an interesting kind of uh, counter to the lyrical content. Um, so Jane Smiley is an American writer. She's a novelist. She won a Pulitzer Prize in 1992 um, for her book, A Thousand Acres. And the song is written from the perspective of her boyfriend um, who has an overbearing religious father. So the lyrics are quite heavy. Like there's a lot of weight to like the imagery and yeah, the relationship yeah. that is kind of described between this guy and his father. Um, and obviously as well, Tweedy's voice is really, really intimate in this song. And it has like such a softness that like I found that whenever I was listening to it, I was like really like 
drawn closer to his words and like really trying to pay as close attention to him um so yeah I just loved that kind of counter of the buoyant and bright uh instrumentation with the lyrics and it's probably I think one of uh Wilco's most beautiful songs of all time I would agree yeah hearing it after Sunday morning it's almost like a kind of descendant of that really do you know what I mean it's living in the same universe just in terms of what the lyrics are doing but then just the kind of almost hypnotic beauty of this kind of twilight sunrise moment um of yeah magic and i yeah i adored a song i i picked it as one of mine and i'm trying to remember the list it was either long songs or it was like tribute songs or something like that and uh, yeah i think it's one of their masterpieces i think it gets a little slept on so i'm really glad to hear it here and yeah i think it works really well in terms of where it's positioned um for my number one Probably keeping it very Craig. Captain Craig, anyway. (laughs) Um, We're bookending my top five with The Strokes and the greatest Scottish band of all time. Zara? Yes, the Blue Nile. Take it away, Adam. Saturday night it's the Boo Nile it's the closer from Hats it was the final single from that record um, it was their highest charter at like number 50 in the UK or something and it's such a magical band um, I I am like I, I am often want to stick this on round about the time mentioned on the Saturday in question in the lyrics like an absolute knobhead because it just does something really special. Like it really works for that time. It sounds like that time of the day and kind of like, you know, the tranquility of a Saturday afternoon and the promise of a Saturday night. I don't know what I'm doing anymore, but Paul Buchanan is an absolute legend, a genius. It seems like in his own quiet way, he is getting more online in the last year or so and maybe hinting at having new songs, which would be tremendous. Um, No longer with the Blue Nile. Um, They have ceased to be a band, but my God, released, what, four records and all of them are kind of various degrees of perfect. This is the most perfect, if there is such a thing. It's hats. It's just one, to, to my ears, one of the greatest albums of all time. And yeah, it's just about what do the Blue Nile do? I guess they just like amplify the super ordinary. They make like, you know, doing the dishes in like a Glasgow kitchen feel like this Hollywood moment or something. And as a band, and I don't know if Paul Buchanan still does it, but they they would cover like Strangers in the Night quite a lot. Like he would often go to old standards and kind of swoon-wordy songs and you can hear that in his voice. And, you know, when he's singing about like The Ordinary Girl or whatever in this, it's total pure croonerism, um, fantastical stuff, but like rooted in something really ordinary and everyday. And... Yeah, that's the Blue Nile. Check them out. I'm sure like everyone that listens to this podcast at this point is like, stop talking about the Blue Nile. We already listened to them. But um, 
Yeah, they're great. Like, there's a Paul Buchanan quote where he was he was asked about like making records and how long it takes, and he's like, he compared making an album to falling in love. It's like you can't do it every year. Apparently, you can't do it every decade either. Um, but hopefully, maybe next year we'll all fall, fall in love again with a Paul Buchanan record, and that'd be a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, this is such an incredible shout and an amazing number one. Um, I think I've discovered or came to the Blue North through the show, actually. Um, the story of when you and well, Dale were on the bus. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't, <laughs> Don't bring, bring up that story. When you guys were on the bus back from Oxygen, maybe, or Electric Picnic. Yeah, Picnic, I think. I think it was our first picnic together. In a, in a really cute friend move, you shared headphones and a, was it uh, the downtown, the downtown lights? lights. Yeah. A song that like... I, I did a garden state, this song will change your life thing on the bus back from picnic. <laughs> and it did change Dave's life. I, I don't yeah. know. It changed like my it? life. Once I listened to the downtown lights for the very first time, I was just completely sold. And the other day, actually, um, my friends and I we were talking about the Blue Nile and how incredible Hats is. And one of my friends said that there's an amazing documentary, a radio documentary, I think, about the um, the Blue Nile, possibly by Ken's. Ken Sweeney put it together and it is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, he went to Glasgow and uh, talked to Paul. And it works really well in that kind of that radio doc context. You know what I mean? You just, yeah. your kind of imagination runs away with you and it's kind of nice and... Um, I don't know, low stakes in a really winning way. Uh, it's very endearing. So yeah, people should check that out. In, in Search of the Blue Nile, I believe it's called. And it's Ken Sweeney, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have that bookmarked now. I'll listen to that today when I'm washing some dishes now after recording with you, Craig. It's the best way to do it. And yeah, everyone go and do that after this episode. We hope this episode has been life-changing for you, listener. Zara, has it changed at least your hangover status or your Thursday yeah, night anymore now. yes yeah, I don't feel hungover anymore the stress has been lifted off my shoulder well we have reached oh, the end you and Adam <laughs> it's been great it's been a nice return uh, as good as it could have been without our main man um, Dave who will be back next week and if he's listening we love you Dave uh, if he's made it this far we <laughs> we love you doubly <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Zara, any final plugs or come on, you're very, you know, everyone should just go and read everything Zara does because it's always great. But yes. Oh, thanks so much. Um, you can do that. And yeah. <laughs> 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 oh, on that bombshell. This episode of No Encore was engineered by the gifted, handsome sonic architect Adam Shanahan. And if you want to help out the show, it's patreon.com. It's forward slash no encore. We will be back next year, 2023. We'll have another episode for you. No, next week. Be there, be square, because Dave will be. This has been No Encore. I've been Craig Fitzpatrick. I will be next week. There will be No Encore. Next week. Peace out, guys. Bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.